Hello and welcome. I'm Trumpet Man, and you're listening to the 40 Card College Podcast, a podcast about advancing your limited game, whether you're a first-time drafter or a trophy master. So this week on the podcast, we're going to be jumping into Phyrexia. I will be one, and what's working and what's not. Uh, I am officially 11 or 12 drafts in right now, so definitely some amount of experience, although of course going to be learning a lot more about the format as we dive further into it. But before we get to all of that, a quick word on the Patreon. So this show is listener supported via the Patreon. Thanks to all the patrons already supporting the show. I really appreciate your support. Now, the resources here, including this podcast, they're always going to be free. In fact, you can find everything at 40cardcollege.com or in the episode show notes. Check that out. Um, however, if you have found value here or you want to give back and get some access to some bonus perks, you can check all of that out at patreon.com slash 40 card college. So a few of those perks, um, there are draft log reviews. So weekly you can send in a draft log um, uh, at a patron tier. Um, there's coaching sessions at the very, very top of the patron tier and then kind of everything in between, you know, group classes as well. If you don't quite want all the way to coaching, but you do want um, some review of, you know, your draft logs, we go through that together, um, work together through uh, different draft logs as a team sort of through those group classes and also cover topics that would be covered on the podcast, but also more in depth one-on-one um, tailored to everyone's needs in those specific group classes. So check all of that out uh, with the Patreon and let's dive on in. No questions of the week this week. That's another patron perk, uh, but we have a ton to talk about today. So I'm actually going to move right along to the cracker pack but if you ever do want to send in a question and you're a patron then check out that section of the discord so for our cracker pack what i'm doing here is i'm using a uh, website to generate the pack and i'm just going to go through it and the reason i'm doing a cracker pack it's a pretty common uh way to frame the podcast i mean they do that on you know limited resources every week there's a bunch of podcasts that do uh, crack a pack, but I think it's a nice way to kind of break down the format and talk about the commons on commons, what you're thinking about, and also going through the draft. And eventually, we might dive a little further, like maybe, you know, through picks three or four, and talk about how we would navigate the draft. But today, I'm just going to be looking at a pick one, pack one, and my thoughts through the pack. So first up in the pack, we have Eye of Malkator. This is two and a blue, the artifact at common. It says, when I have Malkator enters the battlefield, scry two. And whenever another artifact enters the battlefield under your control, I have Malkator becomes a 4 4 Frexion I artifact creature until end of turn. So this card actually has really overperformed, uh, specifically in blue white. Uh, so we'll talk more about that archetype later. But uh, basically, uh, this, you know, having a three mana four, four that pretty much attacks every turn after it comes down, uh, is really impactful. It's not hard to have almost all your cards be artifacts in blue white. Um, and so I have Malkator as this really nice build around at common. Um, now blue, I think is a little bit weaker and I wouldn't want to start with a build around to this level, pick one, pack one. I'm really hoping to get something else, but it is a nice card in the pack. Um, next up we have Titanic Growth, a classic one and a green instant at common, target creature gets plus four plus four until in a turn. I found that the combat tricks in the set are pretty good. A Titanic Growth is a little bit worse because it doesn't generate card advantage. Like some of the other ones like Complete Devotion, which can, you know, draw a card when it targets a toxic creature. I'm looking more for that type of effect. However, if you have more of like a stompy deck in red green, 
Uh, Titanic Growth can help save a creature, punch through. If you do happen to have Trample, it's really nice, um, but not a card you're looking to pick early. Um, Planar Disruption is next. This is the one in white aura at a common. You can enchant an artifact creature or planeswalker, and enchanted permanent can't attack or block, and its activated abilities can't be activated. So Planar Disruption is really nice. Uh, I would not be happy to first pick it, but um, it's certainly, you know, the best card we've seen so far. And I wouldn't be unhappy to first pick it. This this set has so many good bombs that I'm really looking to hopefully start with a really strong uncommon or rare. Um, but if you're going to start with a common, getting some of these generically powerful cards like Planar Disruption is a pretty good place to start. So, so far, definitely the pick out of this pack. Next up, we have Duress, uh, you know, classic uh, discard spell for non-creatures. Uh, pretty much just a sideboard grade. Uh, you almost never even want to bring it in, even in best of three. Uh, but if your opponent is playing like more of a controlling deck or they have a ton of form Mirrodin, so you kind of can function like taking away one of their key creatures. Like if you're playing against white red equipment and you've seen two blade hold war whips, then I would, you know, probably bring in duress from the sideboard. Adaptive Spore Singer is next. It's two and a green for a two, two fraction druid at common. It has vigilance. And when it enters the battlefield, you can have target creature get plus two plus two and gain vigilance until the turn, or you can proliferate. Um, this is a card that I haven't really seen cast very much. I haven't cast it very much. My opponents haven't cast it very much. I could see, you know, a three mana two, two that wants to proliferate sometimes being good, but the one shot effect is a little bit weak here and three mana two twos are just really below rate these days. So I'm really not a fan of the spore singer, but I think maybe if you have a ton of ways that you want to like be toxicking, it could, the plus two plus two to get that toxic train rolling could be reasonable and then the proliferate if you already have a bunch of toxic. But I think you want to do better than this card. Um, but I'm going to have to see if the format goes on. Like maybe this is a role player in green, white, or green, black. And we'll find out. Then we have Gold Warden's Helm. This is two and a white for the artifact equipment at common. It has four Mirrodin. So you get that two, two when it comes in. The equipped creature gets plus O, plus one. So this is effectively a three mana, two, three. And you can pay uh, one and a white to re-equip it. So Gold Warden's Helm, definitely weaker on the side of these four Mirrodin equipments, but I have found that a 2-3 three for 3 mana is actually decent. There's a lot of 2-2s two in the format, so this coming down actually blocks a lot of stuff. And then if you do trade it off, it does sit around. The plus 0 plus 1 is not the most meaningful when you re-equip with the Helm, but it's not that bad either. The creature sizing in the format is pretty flat until you get to the 4 and 5 mana range, so being able to turn like a another 2-2 into a 2-3 if this dies, or, you know, you have a 3-2 that you turn into a 3-3 and suddenly all your opponent's 2-2s can't just trade for it, the Gold Warden's Helm does do a decent amount. And, uh, you know, it gives you a weak but serviceable mana sink late in the game. So, you know, you're never looking to pick this card early. But if you happen to be in the equipment deck or, you know, you happen to look for another artifact to trigger in your blue-white artifact deck, you could probably do worse than a Gold Warden's Helm in terms of like a 23rd playable. Up next, we have Forge Hammer Centurion. It's two in red for a 3-2, and whenever another creature artifact you control is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, put an oil counter on it, and when it attacks, you can remove two oil counters from it. When you do, target creature can't block this turn. I don't love this one even in the oil decks because it kind of takes a little bit of effort to get the oil flowing on the Centurion. Um, and then getting a creature to not block is nice, but you're basically paying three mana for a 3-2, which is going to trade down a lot. And it takes a lot of work to really get it going before an opposing creature can't block. Like, the turn that it comes down, the next turn you probably want to be able to attack and make something not block, and that's pretty rare. 
It does combo with free from flush, which is the single red instant that can make it bigger and put two oil counters on it. Um, but I'm really looking to play the Centurion in more like specific shells. And you kind of want to make sure that small little um, minions and things supporting the Centurion are going to be able to die to fuel the oil. And it just it requires a lot to make this card playable. And so for that reason, I, I really don't like putting it in most of my decks. Then we have Glistener Seer next. It's single blue for an 03. It enters the battlefield with three oil counters on it, and you can tap and remove an oil counter from it to scry one. I've actually found the Glistener Seer to be pretty serviceable. The O3 body uh, does quite a lot for the first few turns of the game. Now, it does get outscaled um, once your opponent starts playing those, like, you know, three threes, or there's a decent number of three ones in the format, so sometimes the Glistener Seer doesn't do enough. But if you can pair it with... Um, your other creatures that can maybe block the three ones, this one can hold down the two twos, uh, you can actually do uh, pretty well with this here. The three scries from it's nice, and then because it's in blue, oftentimes it's not hard to keep the seer just scrying throughout the game. There's a lot of proliferate attached to everything. I haven't played a ton of blue decks, but seer has been a nice key piece to the early uh, part of those games. And my opponents have played it in sort of more mid-range slow blue decks that are looking to play a little bit more of a control game, and it served pretty well. So yeah, uh, if your opponent has a ton of three ones, not a great card, but otherwise it is decent. Then we have the Lattice Blade Mantis, three and a green for a four three. When it enters the battlefield, it has two oil counters on it, and when it attacks, you can remove an oil counter from it. If you do, untap it and it gets plus one plus one until end of turn. So I've actually played a lot of green decks, um, and Mantis, I've, I've had this in quite a few of my oil-based decks, like red-green specifically, and what I found with it is that as a 4-3, at that stage in the game, it actually doesn't block that well, because there's a lot of like 3-mana three 3-2s and 3-3s, three so you're overpaying for the 4-mana four 4-3 four on blocks, and it's not going to block very well, because you're going to trade down on mana quite frequently, but it is a pretty nice piece, because it does come with oil on it. Uh, and so it fuels up your oil engines in like red green, but also because it attacks as a five, four, uh, your opponent really can't, uh, block it profitably. Um, it requires usually a double block and then often like a two for one. So what happens is your opponent either chump blocks it or takes five for a couple turns. And then if it trades down fine, and then, um, sometimes you can also proliferate to keep it going. So I've been pretty impressed with the mantis. Now, it is at a point on the curve where there's other good four drops, so it's not usually like a high priority, but often in the oil-based decks, you're going to be just wanting anything that comes with oil and sort of floods onto the board with oil, so the Mantis has been a, a nice role player there. Still worse than Planar Disruption, which I think we're taking out of this pack so far. Next up, we have Stinging Hivemaster, which is two and a black for a 3-2 Toxic 1, and when the Stinging Hivemaster dies, create a 1-1 one, one Might. So the Hivemaster has been pretty good in the toxic based shells that I've seen like white black and green black um, you really don't want to be just playing it in a random deck although it can be functional in red black too because it gives you that might that sacrifice piece but we'll talk more on the episode later here where mix and matching like toxic in different places where you don't really want to be toxicing is a good way to lose in this format you really want to have a focused plan and so the fact that this one can um, kind of fuel itself where you trade it off and it still gives you that might and you're still trying to get in for toxic uh, is pretty nice. It also, because it gives you two bodies, it's really good with sort of sacrifice fodder. Like Annihilating Glare is that Bone Splinters varied in this format where you can 
use it for a single block mana, sacrifice something, and then get to kill something. Really good with the Hive Master, or even better, you trade off the Hive Master, get the Might, and then sack the Might um, to be able to kill something. So it, it does have some internal synergy with uh, what Black wants to be doing anyway. So it's a, a good uh, role player, I would say. Okay, so we're getting the uncommons here, and this is where we're really starting to look for some power. So Bladehold War Whip, this is the first one up here. It's uh, one red-white for a four Mirrodin equipment, and so it comes with that 2-2. Two -two. Uh, equip creature has double strike. So you're paying three mana for a 2-2 two -two double strike, and also says equip abilities you activate of other equipment cost one less to activate, and it equips for three red-white. So the thing about the War Whip is in a normal set, I think it would be a fine card, but nothing amazing. Because a three mana two two double strike that eventually you could move for a lot of mana to give something double strike would be pretty decent, but there's a lot of these four mirrored in equipments, and oftentimes you're just jamming as many as you can get into a deck. You know, some decks are going to play like six, seven, eight four mirrored in equipments, and so actually you're getting a really nice discount on uh, with with the war whip. So being able to move everything around for one cheaper actually really does add up. Not to mention. Um, I talked about sort of the flat creature sizing. So when there's a lot of tutus running around, the, the War Whip really makes life difficult for the opponent. I mentioned how good the combat tricks are in the set. So when your opponent finally can block the War Whip creature, you just are able to pump it. And sometimes you can win out of nowhere with the double strike because if your opponent is like, well, I can't really block it, you use a couple of combat tricks and suddenly your opponent can take like 10, 12, 14 damage. So the War Whip is, I think, one of the best cards in the set. I'm going to talk about data starting next week. Um, because it's going to give us enough time for it to kind of settle out and we can actually look at some statistics. But right now, uh, the War Whip is performing really well in 17 lands. And people have not been picking it, like, in my pods for some reason. Like, I keep seeing them really late. Um, so I end up <laughs> taking a lot of this card uh, and even trying to splash it, like, in red-green decks and things if I have enough mana fixing. So I would take this over Planar Disruption. Even though it's a double-colored card, um, I think the payoff is so strong that I'd be with uh, willing to like risk and gamble on this um pick one back one all right next we have nimrazer paladin four and a black for a four four with toxic two and when it enters the battlefield return target creature card with mana value three or less from your graveyard to your hand a really good value creature the paladin just bringing back you know whatever you trade off with for example we talked about the three two hive master before so if you trade that off then you bring back that creature with the paladin a few turns later um, this format, oftentimes what happens is you have to get on board early, um, but because of that, you're, you both you and your opponent are doing that, and so you have to be trading so that you don't get toxic, and they're trying not to get toxic, and that's kind of how it plays out. So what happens is there's just a ton of material that's trading throughout the game, and so Nimrazer Paladin in that environment gets a lot better because your 3-2s for 3 are going to die a lot and be trading. And so you're going to often have something that costs three or less to bring back on turn five with your five mana four four. And the fact that it has toxic two means that you're going to also be trading and clearing the way for it, getting your other creature back, hopefully with toxic. And it's it having toxic two being a four four. That's a pretty good creature size. Um, now, there are like four or five for five going around, too. Um, and so I, I think it's just um, interesting as a way to be able to continue to push that damage. I still like the War Whip better, though, so that would be our pick here. Um, next, we have Infectious Bite, one and a green for an instant. Target creature you control deals damage equal to its power to target creature you don't control. Each opponent gets a poison counter. Been pretty good. I think um, biting versus fighting in this set, because everyone's tapping out uh, in the developing stages of the game, 
uh, all the way until maybe like turn five or six and then you start to have mana open means that the infectious bite is not really that much better than um the plus one plus two fight spell uh in green at common so because the fight spell exists at common and might even be better than the bite sometimes means that it's not really a priority like i'm happy to pick this up but i'm not looking to like first pick it because it's not providing something uh that my deck is going to have trouble finding oftentimes and i've also found that it's a little awkward with the fight and bite spells in this set particularly because you have to get on board first and then you're using that uh, fight spell after um, but often you want to be using all your mana so after like turn two or three this costs two so unless you're able to double spell in turn four with two two drops the infectious bite is not that good whereas with the other removal in the set often you can use that on curve and then set up something better like if you use a hex gold slash on turn one or two to kill your opponent's creature then you untap and play a three or four drop then that's going to be I think, much better than the infectious bite is going to be a lot of times. And so for those reasons, just, I mean, you're going to want to play these cards in your green decks, but just understand that um, it's not a two drop, right? It's something that you're going to play later. That's always true, but I think it's especially true in these sets where like you're trying to curve out as much as possible and your opponent's doing the same thing. And then our rare, let's check it out. We've got Green Sun's Twilight, the X and green for a rare sorcery. Reveal the top X plus one cards of your library. Choose a creature card and, and or land from among them. Put those cards in your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in the random order. If X is five or more, instead put the chosen cards onto the battlefield or into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. So the Twilight cycle has been really, really good, uh, especially the white one, which can wipe the board and give you a bunch of mites. The blue one, uh, being able to steal something and make a copy has been really strong. I've seen that one go around. Now, the Green Sun's Twilight, um, actually, I haven't seen this one cast yet, but I don't think it's anything super special because you're basically paying six mana to look at the top six cards and get like a lander creature into play. It really matters how good your creatures are, not to mention the fact that some of your best creatures are for Mirrodin equipments. So the fact that this can't get those... Like um, you have the Silvok Battle Chair, which is the six mana that basically is a six six. This can't even get that, and it's a card that often tops my curves in green decks. So I find that unless you have other bombs, I don't think Green Sun's Twilight would be particularly good. And so you'd really be looking to pick it up later as sort of a medium of the pack pick. And so after all this, we're gonna land on Bladehold War Whip, maybe get into red white equipment, um, and hopefully go from there. But if you want to take a safer route, you could take planar disruption, um, enable being able to interact with your opponent's stuff. And I think that's going to be the interesting thing to look uh, moving forward. Um, you could also take Nimrazer Paladin, like if you have a lot of success with the Black Toxic decks. I haven't quite figured those out yet, so I wouldn't be willing to do that. Um, but and, and I think black and blue are weaker than the Naya colors. Um, but as the format matures, maybe it'll balance out and you could draft more black cards early um, as the Naya colors are more contested because I think that is where you want to be all right so starting with bladed hold war whip nice so that gives us our crack a pack and gives you a little bit of where I'm thinking about the format right now I mentioned a lot in there kind of about how the games are playing out and those rules of engagement and so what I'm going to do I'm going to talk about the five archetypes that I have the most experience with playing with playing against the most discussion about um, that I understand the best today to give you um, just an overview of what to be looking for for those. But before I get to that, I need to talk about the rules of engagement for the format because 
a lot has to go right in your games and in your draft and in your builds for to have success in this format. Like I like I was mentioning, if you don't get on board early, if you're not following these rules of engagement and have a plan through every single stage of the game, it's easy to fall behind. And because of the nature of toxic and the creature sizing and the removal, it's very easy to get snowballed in this format. Like whoever is winning um, tends to keep winning unless something can change rapidly. And so being on the play matters versus play draw, but also being able to stop your opponent on the play when you're on the draw, right? If you're on the draw 50% of the time, you can't just lose 50% of your games because you're on the draw. You need to be thinking about these rules of engagement so that you can have, you know, as much success as possible. So I wrote down four rules, things you want to be thinking about as you draft, as you build, as you play. So number one, you have to get on board by turn two or answer opposing turn two plays. So you don't have to have a one drop in play, though it helps. But if you don't get on board by turn two, especially on the draw, and your first play is on turn three, I talked about the snowballing nature, you're allowing your opponent to toxic you for free, which is potentially going to turn on their corrupted cards. But also, if you just start your plays and you already have like two poison counters or three poison counters, your opponent's going to be able to push those last, you know, seven or eight points of poison counters much, much more easily, even sacrificing their board or proliferating. And you're just not going to be able to race uh, that. Like if you're just playing a, a deck that cares about damage and you already have a few poison counters and you're just trying to simply race your opponent, it's just not going to work. You're just going to lose that game. So you have to be prepared for that. Make sure you have good early early plays, early blocks. Um, but also you want those to be contributing to your game plan too. So uh, you have that plan for the early game, but you also have to plan for the mid to late game. I mentioned that because both players are often getting on the board trying to trade to survive, um, the board is kind of constantly clearing. And because of that, oftentimes what happens is when both players adhere to those early plays, by turns three, four, five, either everything's just traded off constantly or, um, you know, someone plays like a two, three and a bunch of two twos are sitting around and the board starts to build out. Either way, you have to have a plan for that mid to late game. And so that could be something as simple as having like card advantage. So you could be looking to some of your combat tricks to make sure that you keep fueling into that mid or late game. Things like complete devotion, where you're pumping a toxic creature and drawing a card. Um, burning crescendo, same thing, where you know you're winning a combat. Uh, hopefully, it's sort of, sort of like suit up, except these cost two mana. And so the fact that you can have combat tricks that continue to allow you to attack, but also fuels future plays is really strong. Um, other ways that you can get card advantage. Um, I like the sphere lands. These are the common tap lands. You can pay two of the appropriate color and tap and sack to draw a card. Most decks, I think, can play, you know, two tap lands pretty easily. Oftentimes, even if you have one or two one drops, these can also fit in the curve and then you can sometimes find it on maybe turn three or four to also play a tap land. So if you draw a couple, it's not the end of the world. I think if you start to load up, you have like three, four, five of them, you start to get in trouble. Um, unless you have fewer, you know, one drops, you're always going to be playing that. And then you can fit them into your curve naturally. But you don't want to overload because they're also expensive to sacrifice. However, I have found that having these in your deck when your opponent doesn't can be sort of the difference between winning and losing. Because you're both, you can both get into top deck mode pretty easily, and then the fact that you're just drawing an extra card off your land um, can be fueling you to get to the card you actually need faster than your opponent, and then you can win from there. Um, also, because there's so many bombs in the format, every draw step is worth a little bit more. 
Um, like if both decks have an A in them and you're going to need to draw more cards than your opponent, you're going to be able to find that A more often and you're going to be able to win those games. Um, another card that I've been, you know, pretty impressed with and one of the top, one of the top performing commons, it's Contagious Vorak. This is the two and a green three, three. You can look at the top four cards to try to find a land. If you fail, you can proliferate. Um, it, what this does, it's nice. It lets you play more four, five, and six drops than you would otherwise. So if you have a couple of the Vorax, um, you can just, you basically in your mind, you know that you're going to get to that stage of the game. Um, because otherwise what happens is you're so focused on the ones, twos, and threes that it can be difficult to be curving out and hit your land drops four, five, and six while curving out. You just don't have enough cards to do that consistently. Um, in addition, the Vorak is nice because it can help you find those sphere lands we were talking about. So it can find the lands and those lands can also help draw cards. So it, it allows you to play more of a mid-range plan where you're using that to often trade off with your opponent's things, knowing that then you're just up cards and you can end up winning a longer game with the Vorak there. Another plan for the mid or late games is to focus on large creatures or evasion. Now, you want these to be have strong natural stats, but also impact the board immediately because the worst thing that can happen because the removal is so good is you spend a ton of mana and you play a giant creature only for it to be answered. A good example is the six mana, six five um, with trample and reach in green. That card has underperformed just because it's easy for your opponent just to like untap it and annihilating glare it or use um, that white uh, arrest that we just talked about. The um, planar disruption, right? Or your opponent can tap it down in blue with mesmerizing dose. So things I'd be looking for is more like Furnace Strider. That's the four or five in red that can give things haste or Basilica Shepherd. That's the five mana three, three flyer that comes with mites. These types of things where even if they do get answered, you still are impacting the board or you've dealt your opponent some damage. And they also set up your future turns very, very nicely. Like, for example, with the Furnace Strider, you're just threatening that second haste activation. So your opponent has to really think, like, am I actually winning the race now? Because they just got hit for, for four and you're threatening to haste your next big thing. So their board has to be super, super strong for them to be able to race on top of that. And then the Basilica Shepherd, your 3-3 flyer hits in the air. But if you're trying to go wide, especially like in green-white with Toxic, maybe your opponent's more worried about the mites than anything else in addition to everything. So um, those are both pretty fantastic. And then another way, and this is, I think, the key to maybe this episode and something I've seen this week, the four Mirrodin equipments just give you mana sinks that allow you to trade off in the developing stages of the game and then have some material to be able to continue to push past your opponent when maybe they get into top deck mode and, and they have not been planning for the late game. Um, some of the uncommons particularly allow you to really take over the game with combat. Um, Silvok Battle Chair, I had mentioned that one. That's the six mana, plus four, plus four, and trample one. So it comes in as a six, six. But then if you get to seven mana, you can re-equip it and give something plus four, plus four, and trample if, if you do lose the six, six. That one has been really impressive, just ends games. If your opponent can't answer the equipment um, and they're trying to win in just combat and they don't have like evasion, like you're just having a ground war, the Battle Chair completely takes over the game. Because they can't just keep trading for an equipment that gives plus four, plus four, and trample. So basically, then they have to race it. And if the board is stable, then the Silvok Battle Chair is going to just do too much. Another one is the Hex Gold Hellbird. This is the two-man equipment that gives the creature first strike and trample on your turn. And you can re-equip it for two and a red. Um, 
the first strike trample is a really nice combination when you already have pretty big creatures um especially in um red green but in red white obviously this works well too um like if you just get you know a three three even and your opponent has a three three and a two two suddenly they just can't block right and so um what ends up happening too with the halberd is if you can re-equip it in a turn and get a clean hit in then in the next turn your opponent might try to set up a double block but if you have basically any way to augment your creature or have removal it's very easy to set up a two for one so those are the first two rules of engagement um, number three your card should provide synergy in the same direction or be generically powerful so i already talked about the contagious borak yes it technically can let you proliferate but it is just a generically powerful card that's generally going to be a two for one um, and so you're going to take those put in your decks be happy but pretty much your other cards especially after like picks two three four aren't going to be just generically powerful because those are going to be missing from the pack everyone's going to be taking those you're going to be wanting to look for synergy but this set has a ton of synergy that's very hyper specific you have all the toxic creatures that are looking to either win via poison counters or get your opponent to that corrupted threshold and so if you're trying to go in that direction but then suddenly you just play a random creature that doesn't care about toxic um those don't match well together because you're trying to win in two different ways and neither is being fully supported and so probably what's going to end up happening anytime you do that you're just going to fall slightly short in either direction in general the toxic creatures are are priced at their mana values understanding they have toxic um they're tacked on the toxic value is tacked on a little bit um but not entirely and so you're kind of overpaying for toxic if you're not interested in it and then same thing um going the other way if you are using the toxic cards and you put in something that's just like generic and doesn't have toxic or even worse maybe cares about oil that mix and matching um you're going to be overpaying in different directions and so your cards just aren't pushing the same direction and it's going to be uh, an issue i found that sometimes you know the draft you think you have a clear lane and suddenly that lane starts to dry up and then you try to mix in synergies from other places and those push and pull in different directions tends to not work very well um and so i'm still trying to figure out the answer to that like when the draft goes sideways and you can't go in a specific direction what do you do um and i think it has to do with maybe like your early picks and trying to balance the generically powerful cards versus synergies because if you take a bunch of risk on super hyper specific synergistic cards and then they aren't there you don't have the general cards to be able to support it but if you take only generically powerful cards they tend to not be strong enough to fight the strongest synergies in the format and so this is a very interesting tension in the draft portion itself and something that just gonna have to get better with over time and something i'm continuing to look at as i'm drafting this set and then number four you have to be prepared for bombs or have your own the bombs are really good in this format some of them only cost three mana too like you have the um three three glissa which is a first strike death touch creature that has all these abilities you have um miglaws which is the three mana four four with a bunch of abilities and blow things up and pump itself you have the the bloater which is the three mana four four with trample so i mean you have all these like really cheap bombs um that are just efficient threats but then you also have all these planeswalkers and these crazy mythic rears and everything else in general your opponent's going to have one so if they have one on curve what are you going to do about it um are you going to be able to go around it do you have clean answers for them 
Um, and that's what makes this format tough because there's already all these other pressures on the format that I've, we've talked about. But on top of that, these cards are so powerful that you have to basically also account for your opponent having them a decent amount of the time. Um, you know, the best case scenario, they don't draw those cards, but that's not a great plan overall. Now, if you have your own bombs, you can play a little bit of, of a plan to actually get those, those bombs into play. Um, but like I had mentioned, a lot of them are more just like efficient threats. So you can't really control when you're going to draw those. And if you're in your opening hand, it's way, way, way better than drawing it later when you're trying to cast them on curve. Whereas if you do have some of the slower ones, like the Wandering Emperor, where they're like six mana planeswalkers that take over the game, those ones, again, you can draw them later. They're still going to be amazing. Um, and you can sort of plan that as your late game and can just focus more on surviving to that point. Maybe if also understanding this, if you are going to draft a slower deck like a blue deck, you could have some counter spells or uh, ways to make sure that your opponent can't get the, these into play. So a lot of pressures on the format. As I said, if you don't adhere to these rules of engagement, you're just going to lose. But if you follow all of these and you can craft a deck that takes all this into mind and also focus on key synergies, I think you're going to do great in this format. And while while I've been like trying to wrap my mind around these rules of engagement, I mean, admittedly, I've often failed in some area because it's hard to get all four right. Like I've trophied twice in the format out of 11 drafts, which isn't great for me, but it's decent. I've had a couple five threes and six threes, but I've also had a lot of three threes and, you know, two threes and four threes in my drafts. Um, so it's like, I haven't been winning all the time. And oftentimes I can look at my deck after and say, oh, you know what? I failed this one rule of engagement. So again, just go over them summarized so that, uh, cause I know I talked a lot about it. Number one, get on board by turn two or answer your turn opponent's turn two plays. Number two, have plans for the mid and late game. Number three, synergies or generic powerful cards, but the synergies have to go in the same direction. And four, bombs, right? Be prepared for them or have your own. With that in mind, I do want to look at um, a few different decks today and some of the synergies that we would be looking for to uh, draft these decks and the key pieces for them. I'm also going to talk about kind of what you want to avoid because it's easy to fall into traps and take cards that belong in different decks. I think there's a lot of secret quote-unquote gold cards in this format where, yes, it's a single-colored card, but it really only belongs in a specific deck. And if you put it in a different style of deck that doesn't want it, then you get yourself in trouble. Like I said, the classic example is maybe you're drafting like um, blue-red, and uh, there happens to be like some way to try to be toxic in your opponent, but a lot of the deck really cares about oil, for example. Well, you don't really want to have a random, you know, poison counter sub-theme in blue with your red cards because it just doesn't make sense for what the archetype is doing. So let's start things off with blue-white artifacts. Basically, everything here has to care about artifacts, and you're looking to win via normal combat damage. You're not looking to really have toxic blue has proliferate but you're not really looking to proliferate in this deck you're really looking to get my artifacts into play and keep playing an artifact every single turn the most important reason for this is eye of malkator which was that three mana uh artifact and it can turn into a four four when another artifact comes into play um you basically want as many of those as you can it's a reason to be in this deck another reason to be in the deck though is uh, at common is mandible 
Justiciar. This is the one in a white for the 2-1 artifact creature that has lifelink. And then when another artifact enters the battlefield, it gets plus one, plus one until in the turn. No other deck really wants this because the other white decks care about toxic. And so because, of, or they care about equipment. Um, so because of that, the mandible justiciar, I guess it also fits in white red, but really its best home is in white blue where everything is an artifact. And so you're going to tend to get this card a little bit later. And it's a really good home uh, because what happens is in blue white, um, because you care about artifacts, you don't tend to have other great ways to interact with your opponent if you get into a racing situation. So if you and your opponent both care about damage, Mandible Justiciar, even if it trades off, has gained you, you know, three life oftentimes. And so that's enough to kind of help you win races. And so you kind of just want to take this and Eye of Malkator as many as you can get. And that's a, just a beautiful 2-3 curve um, because everything else that comes after that is just going to be an artifact that pumps both of your creatures at that point and especially because i have malkator doesn't play well on blocks it only is a creature on your turn for the most part um mandible justiciar allows you to race in that way and just take damage on the crackback because you have a lifelinking creature so those two are really really important but there's also a bunch of payoffs right you have cephalopod sentry which is the two white blue star five flyer and it counts uh star equal to the number of artifacts you have so that's kind of the uncommon payoff. If you happen to see this card, especially, you know, pick three, pick four, it means maybe people next to you aren't interested in the blue-white plan, and you could pick that up and start to look for the Eye of Malkators as well. Um, another nice one that basically no other deck wants is the Veil of Assimilation. So this is the artifact. It's one in white, and whenever Veil of Assimilation or another artifact enters the battlefield under your control, target creature you control gets plus one, plus one, and gains Vigilance until in a turn. I mentioned how... In blue-white, oftentimes, like, you're just attacking, but you don't have great plans for the backup. So the Vigilance is nice. But even the more important piece is that um, I talked about the flat creature sizing in the format. If you have a 2-2 and your opponent has a 2-2, the Veil of Assimilation allows you to just keep attacking every single turn, assuming you're going to just keep playing artifacts. So it's really, really important that in the blue-white deck, you really try to minimize things that aren't artifacts. If you just have some random creature in your deck that's not an artifact every other card cares about you know having an artifact and so all your cards get weaker if you have a turn where you don't play an artifact um, it's also the reason why you kind of want to pick up those spheres um, or ways to continue to have the cards flow because what can happen is if you just don't draw enough actual artifacts to cast and you happen to flood out a little bit all your cards are just turned off for an entire turn cycle so you have to make sure that you're seeing enough cards or you're ending the game quickly enough so that um, you just have enough turns and enough artifact activations to be able to win the game. But I have found that blue-white is this interesting lane because a lot of these cards other decks don't care about. And so I talked about how you can kind of start down a synergy road and get locked out of it. It tends to be not blue-white because it's so hyper-specific. If blue-white's not open, you're going to know pretty quickly. Whereas if green oil is not open, you've picked up a few good uh, cards for that deck, like the the trolls that draw cards, things like that. And then if it starts to dry up, it's because several other decks can actually use green oil. It doesn't have to be just green, red, that it uses its best, but other decks can use it as well. Um, and so that can be a little bit tricky. So I like blue red for that reason. You know when the lane's open and you just take every artifact you see. A few other standout, like commons and uncommons for the deck, I really like Mirin Bardiche, which is, or I think maybe Bardiche, 
Um, it's the four on a white for Mirrodin equipment. It gives the creature plus two plus one, and you can re-equip for three and a white. Um, so the fact that it's, again, a vigilance creature, so it lets you attack and block. But more importantly, you can trade it off and then stick this on, hopefully, an evasive artifact creature um, so that you can just close games. And then sometimes you don't have a ton to do with your mana in blue-white because you're just curving out. And I, I had mentioned that you need to have that plan for the mid to late game. So the this card is kind of does all, all at once, and it's an artifact on top of that. So it's going to trigger everything else. So I like having one as like a top end in these blue-white decks. Another one that's really overperformed in several decks, but especially here in blue-white, is Tamiyo's Immobilizer. This is the three and a blue artifact that comes in with four oil counters, and you can tap it to uh, and remove an oil counter to tap target artifact or creature. So with the Immobilizer... Often four turns, four oil activations is enough to just end the game because you're ta- you're basically winning a race by tapping down their best attacker slash blocker um, on their turn. It's going to stay tapped for your turn when you attack and you just keep upgrading your tapper to, you know, whatever they play. Like if they start with a 3-3, you tap that, then they play a 4-4, you tap that, etc. So you're it's basically a movable uh, removal spell, which is really nice. Now, I mentioned blue does not care about proliferate basically at all. So because that's true, I think with the immobilizer, you just have to make sure that you do in the game quickly enough that it, it gets the job done. Um, but yeah, blue-white artifacts try to draft all of them. It's kind of collect me all kind of strategy, um, and that can be very powerful. Next up, I want to talk about white-green, uh, which is a toxic deck that kind of looking to sort of go wide, but also just jam as many cheap toxic creatures uh, on the curve as possible. The key with this is you really want to avoid anything with oil and green because white cares about all the toxic, but green kind of has a sub theme with oil or one of its main themes actually. And so you really want to focus on the toxic side of things. Um, you don't want to mix and match. So the keys to this deck, you want as many one and two drop toxic creatures as possible. There's crawling chorus, which is the single white for the one, one toxic that dies into a mite. You have Duelist of Deep Faith, which is the 2-mana 2-2, first strike on your turn with Toxic 1. You have Jawbone Duelist, which is the 2-mana 1-1 double strike with Toxic 1. And you have Branch Blight Stalker, which is the 1 in green for the 3-1 Toxic 2. So basically, you just want to take as many of these as possible. But the thing is, if you play these and your opponent just plays like a 2-3 and you're not prepared, then like half your cards are just dead and you can't attack anymore. So you do need ways to not stall. So you have things like Flinching Raptor, which can... You know, is a the wind drake that can jump one in the air for a turn. So that allows you to just keep attacking. But also, I think, you know, it's important to have those combat tricks, especially, especially complete devotion. This is the absolute best home for it. That's the combat trick again that gives plus two plus two, but if it's uh, a toxic creature, you get to draw a card. So presumably almost every creature in your white green deck uh is a toxic creature. So complete devotion sort of becomes plus two plus two draw a card which is amazing, right? And so anytime your opponent blocks, you've also just attacked with everything. If they have that 2-3 we talked about and you attack with a 1-1 and 2-2, you don't care what they block there. They're going to be taking a poison counter. You're going to be playing your complete devotion and you're going to get to draw your card. So that's kind of the key to just keep attacking. Um, There's also other ways to continue attacking as well. Um, There's Slaughter Singer, which is the green-white gold uncommon that makes it so all your other uh, toxic creatures when they attack get plus one, plus one. That's going to let you just keep attacking as well. Um, Zealot's Conviction, this is the best home for it. That's the single white for the aura. Gives plus one, plus one. But if your opponent is corrupted, it gives an additional plus one, plus oh, and first strike. So giving plus two, plus one, and first strike 
forever means you just get to keep attacking and you've already won a combat. So there you've really upgraded your creature. And if your opponent can't deal with that creature, they're probably just going to lose to it. So this is a common plan all its own. In addition, um, you can pick up spell bombs. They're low priority, but both the white and green spell bomb allow you to keep attacking with toxic creatures. Um, and they're both playable here. I don't think you want to pick them super highly, but the trample is nice. The flying is nice. Um, you do want to make sure that you're still having enough creatures to pair with them. Because sometimes what happens is you pick the spell bomb, um, but it kind of just sits there for a long time and it takes a while to set it up. So really what you want to do with the spell bombs, you kind of want to plan it to be like a cycling uh, way to just push damage where you've already curved out and then you play the spell bomb on like, you know, turn four or five to just keep attacking and then hopefully draw into something better after that. Um, Ruthless Predation, also really nice here. That's the one in a green plus one plus two and fight spell because you're looking to curve out. Your opponent's trying to stop you. You use your two, two to eat their three, three, and you get to attack and get some toxic as well. So all these ways to push damage in white green are essential and they all focus on the toxic plan. Now, Earlier, I did mention you have to have a plan for the mid or late game. The mid game is sort of more that combat trick removal space to keep attacking and get some poison counters in. But eventually, your opponent's going to play something really big. And so what do you do in those spots? Well, hopefully you've gone wide enough that you can maybe deal the last few points of damage. That's going to really help. But um, there are other ways to continue to go wide or go tall with this green-white toxic plan. So two uh, common that are really good at the five-mana spot are Basilica Shepherd. That's the 3-3 three, three flyer that makes two mites. Really nice here. You honestly don't care that much about the 3-3 three, three flyer. Sometimes you'll win with damage, but oftentimes you're really looking to win via poison. Um, and then uh, Tyranax Atrocity, the 4-4 four, four, uh, haste with Toxic 3 in green. Really nice because your opponent can't really race you because this card exists. And Toxic 3 is huge, right? It's effectively like dealing six damage. So a six power hasty threat for five mana functionally. Now, obviously not in combat um, with creatures, but the fact that it's so big means your opponent's going to have trouble blocking it the turn it comes down because it's kind of that surprise attacker. And so their only bet to really stop it is to try to double block. And so if they're trying to do that, well, maybe you go back to your combat trick plan, et cetera, et cetera. So you can kind of just craft a game plan to just keep attacking the whole time. And white green can win that way and eventually just deal the last few poison counter um, damage. The deck I've played the most, um, just I think based on the seats, the cards I've opened, I think also one of the strongest decks is red green. And so this deck is just all about oil everywhere. You want to you really want to focus on oil. You don't care about toxic at all. And that's also the thing with red in general. Red doesn't care about toxic. So anytime you're playing red, you're much more caring about, you know, proliferate oil counters and just dealing damage. And so we talked about not wanting to mix and match. So if you're playing a red deck, you really don't want to be playing toxic cards because you're overpaying for that toxic ability. And you'd rather just have something that just deals normal damage. So what are the enablers that you're looking for? What kind of comes with oil? How are you powering up your oil? Well, you have Axiom Engraver. This card's fantastic. It's one in a red for a 1-3 and enters with two oil counters. Um, and you can tap to rummage when you remove an oil counter. So you get a 1-3. It's great for blocking your opponent's 2-2s two that come down. It's great for blocking your er opponent's early toxic creatures. But the fact that you get a couple rummages means you're just going to be able to curve out pretty nicely. Um, you know, it blocks. And then at your opponent's instep, you just get to rummage twice. 
Um, also, you have some proliferate, so sometimes you get an extra rummage late into the game. Um, and you don't have to pay any mana for it once it's down. So that, that card has just been fantastic for me. Another great one in terms of the top end is Furnace Strider. I've mentioned it a few times, um, but it's really overperformed. It's the four and a red four five that comes in with two oil counters, and you can remove one to give something haste. So basically, it's a four five for five that hastes itself and then threatens to haste whatever's next. And again, your opponent really can't race that oftentimes because the, they have to deal with that. And the fifth toughness means it's really hard to block profitably, especially the turn it comes down. And then after that, maybe you have combat tricks, maybe a removal. So you can kind of punish double blocks after that. Armored Scrap Gorger. This card is just a house. I think one of the better uncommons in the set, but it's the a one and a green 03. You can tap to add one man of any color. And when it becomes tapped, you exile a card from a graveyard and put an oil counter on it. Then if it has four or more oil counters, get plus three, plus O. Now, notably, you do have to remove something to get the oil counter, but this card's really nice because it just fuels itself, and then it ensures that you have a lot of oil counters for your other cards that care about oil, and it ramps them out really, really quickly. So Armored Scrap Gorger, like, I'd be happy to first pick it out of a decent number of packs. It's just such a great plan, and because everyone's trying to just kind of curve out uh, and go up the curve, if you can skip up to, like, four or five mana... Those cards are so much better than the like two and three drops in this format that Armored Scrap Forger goes a long way and sometimes you're on the play and it's even more disgusting. So that card's fantastic. Evolving Adaptive is also an, another incredible card. Uh, single green mana for an OO um, or zero zero, but it comes with an oil counter and oil counters function as plus one plus one counters on this card. And anytime you play another creature, it checks its power or toughness. And if either is greater, you add another oil counter to the adaptive. Um, I've seen this be a one mana five, five or six, six, both on my side of the battlefield and my opponents. I had a game the other day where I was playing, um, and my opponent played this. And over the course of the game, I eventually had to trade a four mana card and a three mana card uh, for their evolving adaptive. So I basically traded seven mana and two cards for <laughs> their one mana card. I mean, that's just, and then I'm like, well, I wonder why they won that game, right? They had a plus six, uh, mana advantage and a card on it, which is just insane. So Evolving Adaptive, again, another card I would not be unhappy to first pick. It's just so easy to grow. And because you're trying to curve out anyways, getting this to be a 2-2, two, two, then a 3-3, three, three, then a 4-4 four, four on curve is... The 4-4 four, four part is a little bit hard, but at that point, you can start proliferating and doing other things too to keep it growing. Um, Lattice Blade Mantis I talked about in the Cracker Pack. This is the 4-3 four, for 4 that comes with two oil counters. Um, it's just a great way to keep attacking. It's not a huge priority, but I do find that you want to continue to play those oil cards up the curve. And there's not great other options in red-green at four mana. Um, and this is really the, the best one in terms of focusing on oil. So it's still a key piece to this deck and something that you'll still want to pick up reasonably often uh, when you see it in the pack uh, towards, you know, picks five, six, seven, eight, that kind of thing. And then another one that has kind of really impressed... Um, because it does generate oil itself and again has that scrap gorger like helps you accelerate sooner than you'd be able to rust vine cultivator this is the single green for the one two you can tap to put an oil counter on it or you can tap to untap target land i found that the common play pattern and play this on one and then accelerate to a four drop on turn three is really nice or you tap it on turns two and three and then you ramp out a five drop like a couple turns in a row just does enough and then the one two body is surprisingly effective like your opponents will play you know the one one double striker or other 
X1s that it can trade with, and it can sometimes pick up an equipment, or you can use this card for other reasons. Um, so it just does enough. It's not like an insane card, but it just really, really kind of pulls the room together in these red-green decks. So I'm pretty happy to pick up a Rustfin Cultivator or two. I do want to note, you have to make sure you have a plan for all the extra mana later on, because the Cultivator can kind of just sit there and do nothing later in the game. Now, if you've ramped enough and you're ahead enough, that doesn't really matter. Um, but I think in these red-green decks specifically, if you have enough Cultivators, like if you have two Cultivators, um, you really want to have two or three Spheres because you just want to make sure that those cards are flowing. So you And you can also lower your land count by one oftentimes. So just keep that in mind with the Cultivator so that you're curving out, but you're also not um, running out of things to do. Now, I also have found that when your curve is low enough, you can play red-green oil more aggressively. So the cards I'm specifically thinking about are Sawblade Scamp and Predation Steward. Sawblade Scamp is the single red for the 1-1 haste. When you play a non-creature spell, it gets an oil counter. You can tap to deal one to your opponent. Um, just a nice little creature. You want to be careful to not put it into decks where you're not really trying to be super aggressive. Because otherwise, it doesn't block well, and the one damage just isn't enough over time. But if you are sort of lower on the curve, where your curve really stops at 4 or 5, and you don't have that many 5 drops, um, you can combo the Scamp and also Predation Steward, which is a 1 and a green for a 2-2. Two -two, comes with 2 oil counters. You can pay 2 and a green to tap it and give something plus 2 plus 2 until in a turn at Sorcery Speed. The Predation Steward is nice when you combo that with the Scamp and curving out. Um, and you have the time to be able to use the steward. The problem with the more mid-range versions of the Red Green, which I think is the more natural home for it, because you're looking to ramp, do that kind of thing, is that the steward is playable, but you often just don't have time to be able to tap it to punch through. So if functioning as sort of your top-end plan to, to pump up your creatures with the steward and then use fight spells and pump spells to kind of keep attacking is kind of a different Red-Green deck. I think it's not... Um, your plan A, but can work if uh, you're not seeing like the good payoffs at like four, five, and six mana. Now, another card I just want to bring to attention, something that I think is really fantastic is Volt Charge. Because you have all these oil counters, being able to kill something and tick everything up in terms of the oil is really, really fantastic. Um, in red green, I like Volt Charge a little bit more than Hex Gold Slash, whereas maybe some of the other red decks would prefer the Hex Gold Slash just because it's cheaper and deals with a lot of things. But in red-green specifically, because you do generate extra mana, you can pay for the extra amount on the Volt Charge, and because the games sometimes go longer, um, because you're trying to play more of that mid-range plan, I think it's a card that's fine to be able to put in your deck. Although you do want both. And then you're doing all this work, you're, you're playing all these cards that come with these oil counters, and you're trying to use that as your plan, but what's the point of it all? Well, you do want to make sure you have the payoffs as well. So these are often the reasons to get in the deck in the first place. So there's actually quite a few of them, which is why I think the red-green deck, it's hard to get cut out of it, and there's so many good payoffs with it. You have Urbrass Anointer. This card is great in the deck. It's the three red 4-2, and it deals damage when it comes in equal to the number of other permanents you have with oil counters. It's not hard to get this to deal 2, 3, 4 damage, um, but you do need to make sure that you don't just put this in a deck where you have like five or six oil creatures. The Anointer is just not going to be that good there. Um, it'll often deal like one, and it's fine. Um, but you really do want to put in the work to make sure it's a great card. Now, if you only have like five or six oil cards, something that can still be pretty good is the Oil Gorger Troll. This is the three green green for the three four. Comes to play, you gain three life. And if you have something with oil on it, you draw a card. I'm happy to play 
basically as many of these as you can get as your top end. Um, it, it does push you to wanting to be sort of more mid-range controly. If you happen to get a lot of oil gorger trolls, well then you're kind of less interested in the furnace striders because the troll is taking your five drop slot. But I'm happy to play like four or five five drops in these red green decks because you're playing the ramp creatures as well. So even though your curve looks a lot worse, these cards are so good at stabilizing or attacking and playing sort of both aggressively and defensively um, that it's okay that you have extra of them. You do want to make sure that you still have good two and three drop plays, but it's also why I mentioned that it's okay if you don't end with too many good four drops in red green specifically, as long as you have sort of the cultivators and plan. Like if you have enough two drops on turn four, you can double spell, right? You can play two two drops. Um, but the five drops are so good that you do kind of want to take those over your blade lattice blade mantises and things like that. Um, so sometimes your curve looks a little skewed in red green specifically. You got a good chunk of cards early and then you have some chunk of cards late as well. Another good payoff is Icker Plate Golem. This is the three mana two three artifact creature. And whenever another creature comes in with oil counters, it starts with another one or this grants it another one. And all your creatures with oil counters on them um, get plus one plus one. So Acre Plate Golem is the one card that kind of asks you, along with the Anointer, honestly, um, to make sure that you have just as many oil creatures as possible. Um, whereas like the Oil Gorger Troll doesn't care as long as you have one. And so you can kind of think of the analogy where you're like all in toxic versus um, just caring about corrupted. The same analogy can apply to your oil decks where some of them it's like you just want every single card to care about oil because you have the payoffs that care about that. Whereas some of them, you're more like playing a common red-green deck, um, you know, with oil gorger trolls. And you don't care if you have some or not. And you're sort of more middle of the road with how many actual oil cards you have. And then to top things off, you've got one of the best golden commons in the set, Cinder Slash Ravager. This is the uh, six mana, five, five vigilance. When it comes into play, it deals one damage to everything. But it costs one less for the number of permanent oil counters on them. This card is just great at six mana. Um, obviously, if you can get it down to like five or four mana or three mana, heaven forbid, th this card is obviously even better. Um, but you just put this in your deck and it's a great reason to be red green because you can take the Cinder Slash Ravager pretty early. Um, often, you know, first pick out of some packs and then um, you can even splash in another green decks. There's so much fixing in the set that I don't mind playing, you know, um, green, white, splash of Cinder Slash Ravager, even though that deck cares about Toxic. This card might still be fantastic there. Um, basically, any deck that you can play it in, you're going to want to put Cinder Slash Ravager, especially amazing in red-green. So to round things out, a couple more decks I wanted to talk about. The very first deck that I played and trophied with even was red-black. And it's a kind of a sacrifice shell that really cares about damage and nothing else, but also cares a little bit about oil, but it just comes up on the cards themselves. You don't really care about proliferating. Um, you definitely don't care about toxic. And you want to just deal damage to your opponent. Because again, it's a red deck. So red decks don't care about toxic. Um, and you're trying to make that work. So the absolute key card to red black and a reason to go into it is Cutthroat Centurion. This is kind of the heart of the archetype. It's two and a black for a 2-2. Two -two, and you can, it's an artifact creature. And you can sacrifice another artifact or creature to give it plus two, plus two until in a turn, but only once per turn. If you're trying to build the red-black sacrifice deck, you really want to have at least two of these, I would say, because the rest of the deck really sings around this card, supporting it and allowing you to have fodder to continue to attack. 
you could build red black without it but it would just be a very different looking deck where you're just trying to play like creatures and removal and hoping things work out but when you have the centurion it's very very hard for your opponent to deal with it profitably because it basically is going to attack and block as a 4-4 in most scenarios um you have to be a little bit careful because there are good instant speed removal spells which can mess with it um if you kind of can smell one of those coming then you have to be careful about sacrificing because you can only use this once per turn so what happens is if you run into your opponent's removal spell you sacrifice they kill your creature on the stack and you just got two for one so it's a little bit of a finicky tricky deck to play um but what you're doing with this deck you're looking for um material as payoff so i think the absolute best one is barb batterfist this is the one in a red equipment um it's for Mirrodin and gives the creature plus one minus one so effectively a three one um but what's really nice is when you pair this with the centurion it the barb batterfist comes with two pieces of cardboard two pieces of material and so you can actually move the barb batterfist onto the centurion so it's a three one and then when you attack you can sacrifice something else to make the centurion a five three if that's what you're interested in or sometimes what happens is your opponent will try to you know say well i'll block with a three three because you have a three one um and if you pump, you make it a 5-3. But what you can do then is you can actually sacrifice the bar batter fist to make your Centurion back into a 4-4. So you can functionally attack as a 3-1, 4-4, or 5-3. And those three different stat lines work very well in different situations. And so I love the combo with bar batter fist, just being able to continue to attack. Um, also, both scamps are quite good in red-black. Cacophony scamp is the 1-mana one 1-1 one, one, that when it dies, deals damage equal to its power. Um, you can combo that with the batter fist to turn into a shock. Um, or you can sacrifice it to the Centurion to deal one damage to clear the way, or you can also attack with basically everything. And if your opponent, you know, if you need to deal one more damage with the Scamp, you can sack it to the Centurion to kill another creature. So it's just very flexible in the archetype um, and a nice card to have. Um, Chimney Rabble is another good one where it's the three mana, three, three haste that comes along with another one, one. And so the fact that you get that extra 1-1 one, one works obviously really well with Centurion. That curve of 3-4 with the Centurion into Rabble means that you can attack with a functionally 4-4 four, four, and 3-3 three, three haste on turn 4. Really hard for your opponent to block that. And then Sawblade Scamp, since you're just interested in dealing damage and you're interested in a bunch of removal and the 4 Mirrodin equipment, means that it's a 1-mana one 1-1, one, one, it'll get in for a couple damage, and then it start to get those oil counters to tap and ping your opponent. So it can often deal like three, four, five damage on its own. And then once you run out of oil, since um, you're not really proliferating, eventually you probably did use it every single turn and run out of oil, you can sack it to the Centurion. So that's kind of the core of the deck. But also on top of that, with all this material, what are the payoffs? Well, you have Exuberant Fusling, which is really nice in red black. It's the red mana for um, an O1, but it comes in with an oil counter and oil gives it plus one, plus O, and then it has Trample. And it also gets another oil counter anytime another artifact or creature dies. So coming in as a 1-1 trample, pairing it with a Centurion means that as you're doing your game plan anyways, the Fusling kind of sits back for a few turns. And it's very easy to get it to be like a 3-1 or 4-1 trample in this deck. And then your opponent just has to trade with the 4-1 and take a bunch of damage. And because Red Black, you're really just interested in pushing damage, the Fusling then becomes a fantastic card. Um, Charforger is the red black gold uncommon it's enabler but also a payoff which is fantastic it's uh one red black for a two three but it comes with another one one and whenever another artifact or creature dies 
uh, you put an oil counter on it, you can remove three oil counters to exile the top card of your library and play it uh, this turn. So again, with the Centurion or just using it to chump block with the 1-1 one -one, or anytime something dies, um, the Charforge is going to be excellent. And it's also a reason that you're really looking for those um, four Mirrodin equipments because they effectively feed the Charforger twice, uh, especially Barbatterfist because the plus three, the plus one minus one has limited usefulness um, compared to maybe a more expensive thing like the uh, the Axe, which is the three red um, four Mirrodin equipment that gives plus two plus zero. Oh. You're not really interested in sacrificing that one as much, although it could come up in a pinch. Um, so yeah, Char Forger, really nice. And another payoff is Necrosquito. This is the three and a black for the zero zero flyer, but it comes in with um, two oil counters that function as plus one, plus one counters. And then whenever another uh, creature um, or artifact you control dies, put an oil counter on it. So it continues to grow as well. Obviously, that's also great with the Centurion, where if you played a Barbatter Fist on two, you play the Centurion on three, on turn four, with the Necrosquito, you play that, you attack, maybe you trade off the 3-1, you could even sack the Barbatter Fist. Suddenly, you easily have a 4-4 four, four flyer for four, which is pretty incredible. So, <laughs> highly recommend uh, that one. And you can see how all these cards just really work together. If you don't have the Centurions, though, you don't have control over when things are dying or control of the board. And so, it really is that essential to the deck, I feel like. Um, in addition, Red and Black just have really, really good removal. Um, if you have the Centurions, you can play Awaken the Sleeper, which is the uh, threat net uncommon. So that, that card is a card most other decks don't care about. Equipment's also really good in this set. So Awaken the Sleeper, getting to kill an equipment, and then sacrifice the creature as well is a nice, clean answer in the format. Um, and then Forge Hammer Centurion um, plus Free from the Flesh. This can be a nice little combo as well if you didn't get the removal. Um, because you kind of care about oil, Free from the Flesh can be a nice pump spell with like Char Forger and Exuberant Fuseling and all these types of cards where you're putting oil counters on things. Um, so kind of think about sometimes Red Black, it's almost always wanting to be sacrificed, but sometimes you're more oil than others. And so it's something to consider. Um, and then also, obviously, Free from Flesh is also nice for getting oil counters on your Sawblade Scamp as well. If you have a lot of removal, I've found that also Testament Bearer is a decent four drop. This is the three black four one that when it dies, you get to look at the top three and take one card. You're you're looking to just keep attacking so your opponents will often trade off their early plays. And if they do that, then a four one actually is pretty nice because they're going to have to trade something real for it. Like maybe they get have to trade a three three for it and suddenly you get a two for one out of your four drop. It also blocks pretty well. I do want to say that um, this format is about all getting on board. So oftentimes people are playing a lot of X1s because of that. There's a couple ways to really hurt X1s in this format. So you're kind of incurring a little bit of risk from Testament Bearer from that Cinder Slash Ravager we talked about in Red Green. Um, there's also the Deal 1 and make it so you can't block for 3 and a red in this format. So the, just be careful when playing Testament Bearer. You kind of have to have the right circumstances. But in the right spot, I think it can be good. And then... Uh, so that's red black. Um, again, sacrifice, make it work. Then the one last deck I want to cover today is white red, which is all in on basically equipment. You basically want as many four Mirrodin cards as possible. Everything has utility in this deck because you're trying to combo all of them and they make all your cards better. So you have Golden Warden's Helm. That's that 
three mana, two, three effectively that we talked about in the Kraken pack. That's the worst, I think, of all of them, but even that is playable. We talked about Barb Batterfist. That one's premium because you're really looking for two drops. So this is a two drop that also enables all your other cards. Um, Hex Gold Halberd, another two drop that enables all your cards, but that one's at uncommon. You'll be really happy to first pick that out of a lot of packs anyways. Then you have Volshock Splitter. That's the 4-2 uh, for four, basically, that you can move around the plus two plus oh later on. That one is okay here. Um, the more payoffs you have for getting equipment going, the better that's going to be, obviously. Then you have Mirren Bardiche, um, <laughs> which, again, can function in red-white. And if you have enough of these artifact uh, equipments, you can also play the Justiciar, which is the 2-1 lifelink we talked about in blue-white. That card actually can be a pretty good fill-in for um, twos as well in red-white. Um, you have Hexgold Hoverwings. This is an interesting one. It's three and a white for uh, four mirror and equipment. It gives the creature flying and um, all equipped creatures get plus one plus oh. So effectively it's um, it, it's a three, two flyer, but all your other equipped creatures also get plus one plus oh. So it's kind of a weird one too, because if you equip something else with the Hoverwings, it doesn't, like if you already have an equipped creature, the Hoverwings is just going to give it flying at that point, not plus one plus oh. So just be aware of like how it interacts with stacking your equipments, but it's a really, really nice kind of um, equipment lord, so to speak. And then another equipment lord at Uncommon is the Bladehold War Whip. I've sung this praises. We first picked it out of our Kraken pack today. Um, giving the creature double strike, making all these other equipments cheaper is, uh, in terms of the equip is fantastic. And then because you're kind of looking to stack up your equipments, um, the double strike is really nice. What often happens again with this deck is you trade off early, but you just start to accrue all these Vermeerd equipments just kind of sitting on the sidelines. And then your opponent kind of starts to build out their board and you put on your Hex Gold Hoverwings or your Hex Gold Halberd or your War Whip, something that makes blocking impossible. And then you just load up your equipment and your opponent just has to start trading for every single one of your creatures. Often they can't, and then it just ends from there. So that's kind of the, the plan with Red White. It's very straightforward, um, but actually really effective. Now, the nice thing, again, about red-white is there's some cards that literally no other deck wants. Um, Bladegraft Aspirant is the two and a red for the two, three menace. It makes all your equipment cost one less, and equipping onto it costs one less. Um, it's really good with the Barbed Batterfist, because you can move the Batterfist to make it a three, two for free, because the equip cost is only one. Um, also, if you have the Bladegraft Aspirants, if you have a couple of those, Mirren Bardiche goes up in value, because you can get a four mana, four, three, um, vigilance that you can move around. So that's fantastic. Eventually you can move it onto the Aspirin itself, which turns into a 4-4 Vigilance Menace, which is amazing. A little less good, but I've still found it to be quite nice, is the Leonin Lightbringer. This is the 2 and a white 3-2 with Ward 2, and when you equip it onto it, it gets plus 1, plus 1. The Ward 2 is actually really annoying when you're playing against it, because you basically have to, you have to deal with it before it gets the pump. Um, otherwise it's much harder to kill, um, but you don't really want to spend all this mana to kill a random 3-2. So what happens is your opponent, or what happens is when you equip the Leon and Lightbringer, your opponent kind of now has to deal with a giant threat, and so they have to spend a ton of mana to do that, whereas if they dealt with it beforehand, they're just down a bunch of mana, because they used a removal on a random 3-2. Um, you really have to make sure you have the equipment, though, because the 3-2, uh, War 2 on its own is, is not that exciting. Prioritize the formula and equipment, um, and then you're going to get these other payoffs later on when the decks open. Also, 
Um, this deck, it's really important to get onto board early. I talked about how amazing Barbatterfist and Hexgold Halberd are because they're those two drops that you can use later in the game. Um, but you're not just going to get a million of those uh, unless you're really lucky. You can play um, a couple of the toxic creatures in white. Just know that you're not playing them for the toxic ability, but rather because uh, they're good, efficient creatures that you can also put equipment onto. Um, so uh, Duelist of Deep Faith, that's the two mana, two, two first strike on your turn. That card's pretty good, especially with Barbatterfist, because you can turn into a three, one first strike, really hard to interact with. Again, not really interested in toxic, but you're not really overpaying for the two, two first strike because you're interested in attacking anyways. Same with the Jawbone Duelist. Um, a one mana, one, one double striker is just good in their, your deck. It kind of is a little bit awkward because it's not good with the Batterfist. Um, but if you have the Duelist, you can combo it with some of the higher rarity or kind of clunkier Volshock Splitter equipment later in the game. And it just attacks well. Um, if you have enough of these as your two drops, sometimes you can play a Complete Devotion because you're going to get your card back. But it's not a card I'm really looking to um, play that much. That combat trick, the plus two, plus two can be okay in white red but usually you want your pumps coming straight from the four mirrored and equipment in addition you want to kind of look for the cards that combo well with the fact that these four mirrored are all non-creatures as well as being creatures so i've found scoblade scamp to actually be a decent little creature to just keep dealing damage as well in these white red decks um you can also put the equipment on it later to just trade off and have a, like a three one with the volshock splitter swooping lookout has been really good in white red this is the single white for a 1-2 Flying Vigilance, and it's just really annoying. And if you're able to put anything on it, it just becomes um, a, just a fantastic little card. Even as something as simple as like a Gold Warden's Helm, turning into a 1-3 Flyer means it can kind of block whatever. It pecks in for a damage. It's annoying. Um, it's a good early play. So I've just found that that is pretty fantastic. And so pretty straightforward deck to in there with white-red. I'm just looking to kind of dump all these four Mirrodin uh, equipment in play and win from there. So today we looked at blue-white with the artifacts, white-green toxic, red-green oil, red-black sacrifice, white-green, white-red equipment. All of these decks, as you can see, are really pointed in a single direction with synergy. If you're looking to get on board turns 102 with them, really focusing for the direct synergy applications we talked about, and looking for those specific cards that are specific to the archetype being open in draft and you're seeing those cards allows you to then navigate into those lanes to get the payoffs and so just be looking for those if also it's really important to be thinking about the wheel like if you're if you're taking some of the white red good four mirrodin equipments or they like the barb batter fist or you know definitely the blade hold war whips but you're not seeing the pay like the payoffs um that are like cards no one else wants like the blade graft aspirant the two three menace that makes your equipment cheaper if that's not wheeling just be aware that you probably can't have the all-in version of that deck because maybe someone else is interested in in those cards as well um so try to figure out like when you can have the best the best decks in the format get on board early have a plan for the mid late game have bombs have synergy all in the right direction those decks do not come together all the time because it's kind of you know the perfect draft but that should be your gold standard goal when you're looking to open a pack. Like, you know, you're, the first thing you're hoping for is opening a bomb. The next best thing you're looking for is like, is there something that really gives me a fantastic payoff that I'm willing to first pick? And that happens to be like uh, the war warp that we open. Great. 
if you don't want to open one of those types of things, um, looking for the generically powerful cards, um, like removal, like the Vorak that can give you a land, these types of things. Now, I'm still unsure of whether the generically powerful cards versus the like gold payoff cards are worth first picking over one another. Because it's so important to interact with your opponent, it may be that you don't want to take the gold uncommons over removal a lot of the time. I think that's something we'll see over time as we draft and how easy it is to get cut out of lanes. Because if you can just stake your claim and get random payoffs that kind of go around because no one else wants them because um, they only go in one deck, it, it might be the type of format where you really want to just take the payoff card early because you know that that's what you're building towards and you're going to be able to have a more powerful late game than your opponent. Um, but if it's easy to get cut out of decks frequently and it's hard to pivot, then it might be that type of thing where you just want to take more general cards early because then you can end up in a lane once that lane becomes more evident and you get the payoffs from there. And, and I could see that actually being the way the format develops because these synergies are so hyper-specific within a deck because you don't want to mix and match. If you do get cut out of a lane and you truly like waste picks, um, that can be pretty devastating. And that's something I've run into. Um, so it's something I'm going to think about moving forward just to make sure I don't train wreck too often. Um, but there are such powerful cards that you really, really want to take advantage of. Um, so maybe the best of both worlds are things like the Hex Gold Hover Wings, which are generically powerful. But if you do have the right deck, they're that much better. Um, so just something to think about. Then there's a bunch of decks, the other half of the decks that I'm unsure of. I haven't played with or against them enough to really comment on how to be building them. So something maybe in the next week or two, hopefully I can comment on them. So we're looking at green, black, blue, red, blue, black, white, black, blue, green. I have an idea of these decks, but not exactly how you want to be building them. Um, and in addition, once the data settles over the next week or two, I will be talking about uh, data, the best cards, and then also the under and overrated cards. I think that'll be important. Though I think those will be more context dependent because something simply being over or underrated um, is going to be context dependent for the deck that they're in. But it can be nice because if we see archetype specific cards being really, really having high win rates in specific decks and being underrated, then it might mean that you can get into those lanes early and expect to see those cards late uh, if the community doesn't value them. So I'm going to be looking for that over these coming weeks. Hopefully this gives you a a rundown on what to look for in the format, uh, the the archetypes, and how to be building them, at least five of them. I will say I think Naya is the place to start. Today I talked about red-green, white-green, and white-red, and that's no accident because um, those are the ones I have the most for, uh, familiarity with. I also talked about three out of the four red decks um, because red is really just focused on dealing damage. And so I think these decks are kind of um, the forerunners and frontrunners for the format. So when you're in your draft, um, starting out, I would probably start there unless, you know, there's a bomb uh, in a different color. Like if I open up, um, if I open up Black Sun's Twilight, then I'm obviously going to take that. <laughs> so, you know, uh, that's today's episode. It's been a lot of fun looking at these decks. I do want to give a special shout out to my adept here and above patrons, um, Marius and Adrian. Thank you so much for your support. And then Everyone, uh, thanks for listening and see you next time on the 40 Card College podcast.